Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word, which speaks to our hearts um, in a very direct way. I pray, God, that we would align our, our hearts and our minds and our lives according to your word, that we may follow those who have gone before us in faith, and that we may also show forth that there is a God and a King and a Savior in this world. May you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's November 1st, in case you didn't know us. If, if you're, if you're um, listening today and you're overseas or you're somewhere else, it may not matter, but I was on a Zoom call this week um, with some folks in Canada, and um, the Canadians were concerned about it being November 1st soon, meaning close to election time. And uh, this Zoom call, we, we had a number of folks on there, and everybody... Um, in a different country was concerned about the election. And I thought, we're not the only ones who are tired. Um, I don't know what your experience is, but every time I drive down the road and I see corners cluttered with uh, vote for me signs, um, it makes my knees a little weak and I get a little more tired. And then every time I'm trying to watch football or something else appropriate on TV, um, I, I get you know attack ads after attack ads after attack ads, and, and it's wearying. Um, and so you may find this fatiguing. Uh, I, I know that I do. And it's hard to discern um, kind of what's true and what's, what's right and what should I listen to and what should I not listen to. And ironically, I, um, in studying for this week, I found that um, political ads are actually biblical. <laughs> I was hoping to keep a straight face when I said that, but I didn't. I'm going to explain how these are biblical, and uh, hopefully we will point towards a kingdom that is worthy of our very lives. So I want to start way back in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, Israel is, is, is come out of Egypt, and they're becoming a nation. They're called to be distinct. They're, they're called to be God's people in a way that, that when people look at them, they say there's something different about them. They're to uniquely reflect the God of Israel and his people so that when they see these folks, they go, hey, there's something else in the world. It's not just what we see. But they aren't doing what God has asked. They fall into looking just like our culture, and this may sound a little familiar, but they were, they were intermarrying and worshiping other gods, and they were doing all the things that the people around them were doing. And in a very sad and foreboding turn, they forsake God from being their king. So 1 Samuel 8, verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. Is it not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king? As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will rule over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And here's the proclamation that Samuel made. It's a bit like a political ad. Okay, it's a huge stretch, but I try. And this is what he says. 
This is what the king who will rule over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots, representing the king and carrying his messages. He will assign them to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. Others will plow his ground and reap his harvest. Others will make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive groves and make them his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. You yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Some kind of proclamation, hmm? The king will have a ton of power. He can take their kids, their things, their money, make them slaves. That's quite the political ad. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a way of saying, know what you're getting into if you go down this road. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them. Give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your town. It says in chapter 9, there's there was a Benjamite, a son, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul. He was a handsome young man, as any could find in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. They got a king. He's the right kind of king from the right kind of family. He's rich or handsome. He's tall, very kingly looking, just like the people wanted. And the truth is that no person, not even David, who is the most famous king, would be king that would come close to being a king like God. They can't be compared. No one would care for, provide for, fight on behalf of, bless, or treat with justice, and provide a place for the refugee the way that God had and would. They traded the kingdom of God for the kingdom of man. And any political figure, party, or representative in ancient Israel or today is a paltry, shadowy, impotent attempt to rule in comparison to the kingdom of God. They chose a king of power and influence and greed and selfishness. Instead of the kingdom of God being found among them, they looked just like their culture. And as such, mentioned previously in a sermon, they produced wild grapes. So for nearly a thousand years, the people of God labored as just another people. They were lost in the shuffle between great empires, 
squeezed on every side by enemies. King replaced king who replaced king who replaced king. And they remained impotent, shadowy, and paltry. Then comes Jesus. This king doesn't claim the same kind of royalty. He doesn't claim the same kind of power or privilege that these other kings claimed. He doesn't talk of having the power to take everybody's goods, to tax them, to take their kids or make them slaves. When he arrives, he makes quite the stir, though, because he talks about a new kingdom, one that harkens back to a different day, one that represents a different king and a different people. So Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. And this is where we find our scripture in Matthew chapter 5. But in Matthew chapter 4, this is how he arrives. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! Turn around! Go another way! Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's now. Pay attention. So what did he do? He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis all the way from Jerusalem to Judea and beyond the Jordan. Jesus looks different than the king Israel chose for themselves. In fact, he isn't very kingly. He doesn't have this army following him. He isn't handsome. He's not tall. There's no fanfare. There's no power in the way that people wanted to see. But he's calling people to repent. And he teaches. And he proclaims the good news. And he proclaims a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, where God's rule is. And he heals and he delivers. His, his candidacy looks very different then than what we saw previously about what a king could be or should be or will be. So if Jesus were to make a proclamation from Matthew chapter 5, and I believe that Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes is a proclamation of a king who is saying, this is the way things are now. And I've taken it from N.T. Wright's New Testament that he... he he rewrote this passage um, from the Greek, and he says to this, so this, this is the political ad, imagine. Wonderful news for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Wonderful news for the mourners. You're going to be comforted. Wonderful news for the meek. You are going to inherit the earth. Wonderful news for those who hunger and thirst for justice. You are going to be satisfied. 
Wonderful news for the merciful. You will receive mercy yourself. Wonderful news for the pure in heart. You will see God. Wonderful news for the peacemakers. You will be called God's children. Wonderful news for the, those who are persecuted because of God's way. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Wonderful news for you when people slander you and persecute you and say all kinds of wicked things about you falsely because of me. Celebrate and rejoice. There's a great reward for you in heaven. And that's how they persecuted the prophets before you. It's very different. It's very different. And it falls on our ears similarly to the way it would have fallen on folks in the first century. It's not a list of virtues for people to follow. It's an announcement about what's true. It's a proclamation. And it's about what's true now and what will be true going forward. He takes, DZ has a lot of guts making that kind of statement. Because it comes in the middle of all that's happening socially and politically. I mean, imagine somebody saying those things. Who does he think he is? Nobody, nobody elected you. Nobody appointed you. Who do you think you are? You don't have the power to do that. He's no king. He's a carpenter's son from a backwater area of no account. I mean, when you make that kind of proclamation, don't you know who's in charge? I mean, Rome's in charge. Doesn't he know the Jewish political leaders call the shots? Who do, you, who do you think you are? What makes you think you can say this? No, one's, no one is going to give up their power. This insignificant, meaningless proclamation from this backwater guy is going to go nowhere. It's going to get drowned out by all of the political noise and all the social noise and all the way that people think and feel about things. All the socio-political unrest of the first century and all the political maneuvering is going to put Jesus right in the crosshairs of Rome. And it does. So Jesus claiming a kingdom and proclaiming a kingdom and announcing this kingdom gets brought before the authorities. All the might of the world is represented in Rome and the Jewish leaders. And John chapter 19 records this perfectly. I'm going to read this passage of Scripture because I think it speaks exactly to what I'm trying to get us to see. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said, See, I am bringing out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to him, 
Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. This backwater rabbi, prophet person, tells Pilate, the representative of the most powerful empire on earth, you have no power. It's significant. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And now at the end of the preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried, Away with him, away with him, and crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And I want you to pay very close attention. This is one of the saddest moments in all of Scripture. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. The desire for a king in the Old Testament book of Samuel is consummated in the crucifixion narrative of John. See, we don't want you to be king, God. We want another type of king that looks just like everybody else. And the summation of that action is found right here when they say, we have no king but Caesar. He's the kind of king we want. In order to gain what is seen to be religious and political advantage, the chief priests sell their souls. Instead of God being Israel's king, they opt for paltry, shadowy, and impotent version of what that looks like. And I want to be really clear. This juxtaposition between the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God is present every time we have an election. We get to choose between kingdoms. In fact, one is ruled by a king and the other is false and pretend. One kingdom seeks power and one kingdom has power. One seeks control, the other kingdom knows who's in charge. One kingdom seeks to belittle and objectify its enemies. The other kingdom loves them. One kingdom claims they will change things for the good. The other kingdom transforms lives. One kingdom is full of greed. The other kingdom gives the clothing off their backs. You may be thinking that I'm talking about Democrats versus Republicans. If you are, you're missing the point. I'm 
talking about the kingdom of men versus the kingdom of heaven. And they're not equal in any way. God grants power for authorities to keep, to keep the chaos at bay. There's a reason that we have rules, and it's to keep the chaos and the madness of life at bay. They don't transform hearts and minds in the streets. They can't forgive sins and make new life. They can't usher in a new way of being human. And they can't defeat hell and death. They're in no way equals. Any comparison between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man is equivalent to saying, Jesus is my Savior and Corey Woods is my mayor. It's a paltry, shadowy, impotent comparison. Elections, however critical they may be, are choosing between parties and rulers that can't and don't represent the kingdom of heaven. At best, they represent the kingdom of men with half-hearted nod to gospel issues, whichever suits them best. Elections choose between kingdoms of men, and we are choosing would-be kings. So we must be informed and we must vote, and we must recognize the limit of the power of government has as we live as if we already have a king. Christians, Christians, pay attention. We already have a king. He's never going to be dethroned, ever. There's no election process for him. Jesus was taking on hell, sin, and death. He wasn't interested in just being the king of Israel. He was the king of kings and lord of lords. And not just of nations, but to reign in the hearts of minds of every human being ever. We know that the scriptures teach every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They may bow in loving reverence, for who Jesus is, or they may bow in defeat and despair, but they will acknowledge who is king. So Jesus' proclamation in Matthew 5 is what we know in part and what we will know later in full. He's saying this is the way it is and this is the way it will be. His words have reverberated through the ages. They didn't just get drowned out in all of the mechanisms that man can put together, but they've moved forward. They're not creating little kingdoms of powerless rulers, but they're creating an incalculable kingdom like the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach. Imagine sitting at a table with everybody who has ever lived in faith in Jesus Christ. What a feast. We are invited to be a part of that. The kingdom of heaven is here and now anywhere in which God's rule is lived and proclaimed. And in Matthew 10, Jesus said, you don't need to fear the ones who can kill the body. You don't have to worry about that. Do governments and rulers have power to do that? Yeah. Can they take your stuff? Yeah. Can they tax you? Yeah. Could they kill you? Yeah. Jesus says, fear the one who can destroy your body and soul. So we celebrate those who have lived this way in the past and who live this way today. We call them saints. 
people who have followed in the way of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of their circumstances. Their lives are signs and markers pointing us to a kingdom of hope for the alien, a home for the orphan, care for the widow, justice for the oppressed, mercy for the guilty, and grace for the undeserving, love for enemies, and peace that transcends understanding. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's what is before us this morning. We, we have an opportunity to think about what it means to be Christ's own forever in our baptismal vows. It's easy for us to get sidetracked into political ads and all of the things that we're worried about. And oh, who's going to rule the country? Well, there is a ruler over this country. And his name's not Donald Trump. And it won't be on November 5th. And it won't be Joe Biden. It's Jesus Christ. And God's people must act like we have a king already. So God and Jesus Christ is offering himself again to be king. Do you want me to be your king? Do you want my kingdom or do you want another kingdom? It's very clear. Our baptismal vows are incredibly clear about what we are choosing and what we are not choosing. What we will say yes to and what we will say no to. And just like election day, you have a decision to make this morning. You get to choose what kingdom you want to participate in. It's going to change how you think and how you act, how you orient to authority, how you spend your leisure time, what you do with your money. But not because there's somebody demanding it of you, but because there is a loving God who's beckoning you into something so much greater than yourselves. We have an opportunity to live in light of the fact that Jesus is our King. Repent for the ways in which you have not done that and come before Christ. Receive His kingship. Live under His loving authority that we might reflect what it looks like for the world to have a different kingdom. Amen.